All right, back in Exodus, actually join me there in chapter 3. We didn't quite sneak out of the last few verses there in the third chapter, so we'll tie up the end of chapter 3 as we move into chapter 4. And really, we're in the midst of kind of a flowing scene anyway. We're with Moses uh, at the burning bush, God's calling uh, upon his life at this time. Remember the Lord uh, becoming burdened for his people, having compassion uh, for the children of Israel and the things that they were going through. At this time, uh, the moment, the accurate hour has now come for God to bring his deliverance for the children of Israel, uh, to set them free from their bondage and their slavery there in Egypt. And God, having determined who he was going to do that with Moses, uh, reveals himself to Moses. Remember Moses at this point, uh, has been basically in the backside uh, of the desert there in the area of Sinai uh, with Jethro, his father-in-law. Uh, God's added a wife to him. God's added a son to him. It seems two sons we'll see tonight uh, as we move forward. Uh, and Moses just tending the flock of God. He spent the last 40 years out there, the Lord just humbling him, uh, taking him through a process, allowing him to be involved in just the tedious activities of just every day, uh, very common, natural events, tending a flock out in the middle of a desert. And by this point in time in Moses' life, all his aspirations for greatness, uh, all of his dreams and desires, again, remember we saw together last time, he sensed the call of God in his life, and he accurately discerned that, that God had called him to be the deliverer for the children of Israel. Uh, but Moses, about 40 years premature to that, decided to... Uh, take the matters into his own hands and try and initiate the call of God upon his life and an endeavor to just deliver one Israelite. He murdered an Egyptian and couldn't even successfully bury one Egyptian in the sand. Uh, God revealed uh, what took place among the people there in Egypt. And because of that, uh, Moses finds himself sitting now on the backside of the desert for the next 40 years while God's cultivating his character, much like he does you and I. It seems that all of us kind of have our wilderness and desert experiences where God will put us uh, into a place in some senses of of kind of isolation, a, a time of sanctified loneliness where we find ourselves uh, just kind of experiencing being in the crucible of God while he just kind of works on our character and and burn some of the ambition and some of the fleshly desires that are within us uh, to allow us to realize who we really are before the Lord. And at this point, uh, Moses, it seems, has kind of given up all hope uh, and sense of any aspiration that something great would come out of his life. And it's at that point God's sensing his readiness and the right time and hour coming to pass revealed himself to Moses, we saw last time in this burning bush experience, and begins to speak to Moses and to tell him that he is going to send him to Pharaoh that he might bring his people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And at that point, remember Moses, now being in a very humble place in his life, begins to basically start to question the call of God upon his life. And he begins to offer to God excuses why he can't fulfill what God's asking him to do of his life. And the very first thing he said back in chapter 3, verse 11, is whom am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Uh, now, last time, uh, prior to this moment, when Moses sensed the call of God, uh, Moses kind of had the attitude, I know who I am. Uh, and, and that's what kind of launched him forward into trying to take matters into his own hands. But at this time, he's in a different place in his heart and life. And when God calls him, he says, who am I that I should go? Lord, who am I? 
I'm inadequate, I'm incapable, and couldn't do something like that. And he expresses his inadequacy. God encourages that his presence would be with him, speaks to Moses about it's his presence in his life that would make the power of God operate through him and gives him really the instruction of what he was to do we saw at the end of chapter three he was to go gather the elders the leaders of israel together to speak to them about how god had revealed himself to moses and explain to them that god had heard their cry he saw their affliction and that god wanted to deliver them out of their current situation and now moses is a man who understands the heart of God. He understands what God is concerned about, and he's not going out with his own idea or his own aspirations or fleshly ambitions, but now he has a real sense of exactly what's on the heart of God and who God is concerned about and the particular people group that God is burdened for, and he's to go and share that with the people of Israel. They would respond favorably to that, And then afterwards, God said, you will then, verse 18, uh, go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met us. Please now let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But we saw last time as we left off, God saying this to Moses, but Moses, I'm sure the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. So then I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders. We know this as the plagues, which we'll see in the chapters ahead, which I'll do in his midst. And afterwards, he will let you go. So God forewarns Moses graciously in advance. Look, Moses, it's not going to be problem free. Uh, This calling that I'm asking you to step into, it's not going to be with the absence of difficulties. There's going to be resistance. There's going to be difficulties. There's not going to be instantaneous success. In fact, at first, uh, Pharaoh is going to refuse your efforts to try and fulfill the plan of God. But look with me, verse 21. This is where we left off last week. God also assures Moses, verse 21, And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be that when you go, that you shall not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and daughters, and so you shall plunder the Egyptians. So God gives an interesting insight here to Moses. He says, Moses, listen, another thing that I want you to be aware of is that as I call you to do this, and as you is again, a group of upwards to potentially one and a half to three million people, the nation of Israel is at the time of the Exodus. That's a massive group of people who, remember, are nothing other than slaves under the the cruelty and the bondage of taskmasters. They had very little. They weren't being paid for what they were doing. It was slave labor. They weren't being compensated. So they were impoverished in their conditions. And now God is saying, I'm going to set you free and bring you into this land. Well, how do you supply and take care of one and a half to three million people, a congregation of people that size, to journey through a desert area, through a wilderness, to get ultimately into a promised land? Well, again, when God directs to do something, God always finds a way, whatever his way may be, to make sure the adequate provision will be available to accomplish the thing in which he is leading his people to do. And that's what God is speaking to Moses about here. He says, listen, Moses, in case you would be worrying, when you go, he says, verse 21, you're not going to go out empty handed. 
And he tells Moses that the women, interesting, potentially maybe because of the relational dynamic, women just seem to be very uh, you know, gifted in the area of relationship dynamics. Maybe it was the compassion that would be shown towards the women. The women were to ask their, notice, Egyptian neighbors, those who lived around them for articles of silver and gold and even clothing. He says, and put these on your sons and daughters, and so you shall plunder the Egyptians. And God tells Moses that what he was going to do was, verse 21, he was going to put favor into the hearts of the Egyptians toward the people of Israel. In other words, God was going to touch the hearts of pagan people, of ungodly people, which shows you, again, the Bible says that God can turn the hearts of kings. And we see this pattern throughout the scripture where, yes, God can move in the hearts of his people and God can speak to his people. But God, if he so wishes, can supernaturally touch and put favor into the heart of an ungodly employer, uh, of, a, of a pagan person and, and, and someone who doesn't even have a relationship with God and put a unique special favor in their heart to be favorably disposed towards one of his children or toward the people of God to give them some opportunity or to provide for them or do something for them whereby they might be adequately provided to do what they need to do. And this is what God was going to do. He was going to touch the hearts of the Egyptians. He was going to give favor to the people of God with this particular people group so that as they went out, he said, you will go out not empty-handed, but you actually plunder the Egyptians on the way out. Now, in some senses, consider there's almost a humorous side to this, what was God doing? In essence, God was just giving them back pay for 400 years of slave labor where they were never fairly compensated. They worked for 400 years as slaves and they were never given due compensation for the work in which they were doing. So God says, that's fine. You can't rip off my people. I'll just give them back pay. You know, they'll get all the pay on the way out the door in the end. Uh, you know, it's just wonderful how the Lord always has a way to provide. He always has a way to provide in your life individually for his people when he's calling them to do something congregationally. Uh, again, however God does it, I find in my life that he never does it the same. I find that in ministry so many times you can't pattern God. You know, God may do it through some unique gift. God may do it through some unique opportunity where it's like, that's all you want for that, whatever. But God always has a way to make sure by giving his favor to those around us and in our midst to make sure that we are fairly taken care of. Even if we were in some ways cheated in a situation, God can restore back to us and to make sure that we're adequately supplied. So they would go out, not empty handed, but full. Because again, as we've said many times before, when God guides, he provides. It's just the way the Lord works. And he always supplies and he's always able to adequately support his work and his plans and purposes among his people. And here we see God doing that. Well, chapter 4, verse 1, Moses and God are still at the burning bush here. There's still this dialogue happening as we continue on. And Moses now proposes, notice his next hesitancy his next sense of reluctance as he's struggling with the calling of god upon his life to be a deliverer it says and moses answered and said but suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice suppose they say the lord has not appeared to you so again god says moses here's what you're to do i want you to go to the children of israel 
I want you to tell them that I've appeared to you, that I've seen their affliction, that I have compassion for them, that I want to deliver them out from under the bondage of the slave labor and the cruelty of the taskmasters there in Egypt and bring them into a good and a large land and, and, and share with them all that I've spoken to you and what my plan is. And, and Moses now begins with this struggle of kind of what we do as well in our lives. He begins with kind of the what if scenarios. Notice two times he says, but suppose, notice, suppose they don't believe me, or suppose they just won't listen to me, or suppose they doubt me and say, the Lord hasn't appeared to you. What are you talking about? God hasn't called you, and, and this isn't a message from the Lord, and you really think God's leading you. And, and, and he begins with the struggle of, Lord, well, suppose this happens. Or suppose this doesn't happen. They won't take my word for it. Or suppose that they don't see what you're doing, God. And, and what if this? And what if that? And isn't that often what we do? Many times when God speaks to us about something and we, we hear the word of the Lord, uh, we have a propensity to doubt a lot of times. And we begin to try and think through things rationally or we want to process everything logically and see the whole map laid out in front of us. And God never works in that way. God leads by progressive revelation where he gives us one step. We saw that with the life of Abraham. And once we take step A, then God tells us step B. And once we do step B, then God tells us step C. We, we, we want the whole outline and that's not how God works. And I'll tell you why does God doesn't work that way very simply. Because God desires us to live by faith. Hebrews 11 says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And I have found in my life that I have to be careful that I don't try and take every element of faith out of the things that God is leading me to do. If God is leading me to do something, if there is not some element of faith still involved in it, uh, I need to be careful because then I'm trying to over-micromanage something that God's doing sometimes. And God always wants there still to be an element of faith. Should we be good stewards? Yes. Should we pray and process things? Yes. Should we look for open and closed doors? Yes. God calls us to plan. He calls us to be wise. But by the same token, the Bible also says, but you've got to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. What's that faith? Lord, I don't know what the next step is, but we're, we're, we've did, Lord, we're acknowledging you now. And it says, and then he'll direct our paths. And there should always be in your life some element and measure of faith to what God is directing you and leading to do. Because if we take out the faith factor, then we're just doing everything in the flesh. And, and, and it's something that we're managing and we're controlling. And, and here God says to Moses, I want you to do this. And Moses, Moses doesn't have all the answers. He doesn't have all uh, the what-ifs figured out. But just like you and I, he begins to wrestle, it seems, a little bit with doubt. His, his logic, his reasoning is involved, and he starts putting God through this barrage of questions. Well, suppose if this happens, and I'm sure we've never done that before, well, but what if this happens, or what if this doesn't happen, or suppose people don't respond, or no one shows up, or nothing happens, or suppose everything just falls apart once we step forward in that direction. And, and, and this is what Moses is doing here, and notice verse 2, the Lord said to him, I like what he says to him. He begins with a question. He says, Moses, what is that in your hand? And Moses had in his hand, notice, a rod. It was the, the shepherd's staff. Uh, it was probably about a six to eight foot stick that he would use for walking. 
It was it was a common just piece of wood that was used to protect himself against uh, animals, against bears and and wolves and so forth to protect the flock that he was shepherding. Uh, it had a universal purpose, but it basically was the tool. It was the common tool of someone who did the work of a shepherd and tended flocks. And, and notice the way that God deals with his doubt. Verse two is the Lord said to him. You know how God always deals with doubt. By the word of the Lord. Because the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And one of the antidotes God always has for doubt and concern and questions is just his word. He always directs us back to his word. And here Moses receives the word of the Lord. This time God speaks to him directly with a question. He says to him, Moses, tell me, what is that in your hand? You, you, what if this and what if that? And, and he says, Moses, let's, let's get real simple here. Let's start. What's in your hand right now? Well, the only thing I got in my hand is a shepherd's staff. That's all I got. And I think in a sense what you have God saying, now we're going to see the miracle that the Lord begins to demonstrate to him to show his power and the credibility of the call of God upon his life. But I, in one sense, almost discern the Lord saying, you know what, Moses, what's in your hand? Well, here's what's in my hand. And God says, good, start with that. Start with that. What What is in your hand? Not, well, what about this? And suppose that. And when am I going to have this? And when will that step happen? And then we'll, and, and we don't have all these things. And God says, but what do you have in your hand right now? Just start with that. What's in your hand? And, you know, I think sometimes the Lord, when we think about God using us in our lives, that many times that's, that's the question God poses to us. Oh, Lord, how could you use my life? Or what do you want to do with me? And what could I possibly contribute to the body of Christ? Or, you know, how could I serve you? I mean, I'm so inadequate. And, and, and God says, well, what's in your hand? What's in your hand? Maybe it's a hammer. Maybe you're good at doing things with tools. What's in your hand? God says, well, start with that then. Because that in the hand of God, we'll see later on in this chapter, when Moses leaves to begin the call of God, the Bible then says to us actually in chapter 4, verse 20, that it's called the rod of God. It was just a shepherd's staff, but it becomes the rod of God. And so, you know, maybe in our hand is the ability to, to do something that, that's a life skill. Maybe it's a musical capability. Maybe it's an ability to, you know, to, to cook. And what's in your hand? Well, a spatula. Well, you well, use it for something. Let that spatula become the spatula of God and make meals and bless people. Or, you know, whatever that simple thing is, God says, look, well, what do you have to start with? Just start with what you got. Don't say, well, i got to wait until I have this and that. and that. No, God says, well, what's in your hand right now? Maybe it's just something small. Can I remind you that when Jesus fed 5,000 people, could have been upwards to 15,000 people if you calculated women and children, what did Jesus do that with? He did it, in essence, with what was in a little boy's hand. That little boy had what? Five loaves and two fish. And, and Jesus said, give those to me. What did he do? In essence, that was probably a lunch that some nice Jewish mother packed for her little boy as Johnny was wanting to run off and follow the crowds. And, and oh, oh, mommy, Jesus is going to be over by the Sea of Galilee. Can I go? Can I? Yeah, wait, 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 wait. Come back here. Did you brush your teeth? Did you, did you wash behind your ears? And well, let me pack you something. And she packs him little five loaves and you know little pieces of bread and two fish and pats him on his head and sends him out the door and tells him to go home before dark. And some faithful mom who made lunch for little Johnny uh, to go out 
becomes the very thing of just that simple thing that was in her hand, and then again that simple thing that was in his hand, becomes the thing that Jesus uses to minister to all kinds of people. So don't ever diminish what's in your hand. Oh, I'm just such a simple person. I don't have many skills. I, don't, I only have one skill. Look, whatever it is, you put that in the hand of God. You put that in the hand of Jesus, and Jesus can multiply it and, and add his miraculous power to it, as we'll see, and then it becomes a very useful thing for the Lord. So Moses is kind of just holding this rod. Well, this is what I got, God. It's, it's just a rod. It's a piece of wood. It's just a, a simple piece of wood. And God said to him, verse 3, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent or a snake, the idea is. And Moses did what you and I would do. He fled from it, especially if it was the size of that rod, which was six to eight foot. Now you've got a six to eight foot snake all of a sudden you know, hissing and curling around your feet on the ground, and, and he wasn't expecting that. And we're not told what type of a snake it was, but this huge snake. So Moses, in fear, steps back and takes a few steps away from it to flee from its presence. In verse 4, as if the Lord thought that he didn't need his faith stretched a little more, then the Lord said to Moses, uh, Moses, yeah, God, he's probably hiding behind a rock. Moses, reach out your hand. Oh, you're not going to say what I think you are, God, are you? Yeah, Moses. And take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand and God said that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you now take notice God does this first miracle in the midst of Moses's presence and through his life and the first thing that he does is that staff or a rod he throws it on the ground it miraculously becomes a snake Moses is terrified by it, and rightly so, and then God says to him, Moses, reach out and take it, and as he reaches out his hand and he takes that serpent back, all of a sudden now that snake transitions back into a rod, and Moses is not harmed. Now, as this takes place, keep in mind what God is telling Moses to do. Not only is he terrified by a snake, but verse 4, God says, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. Now, I am by no means somebody who likes snakes at all. I'd much rather have the spider thing than the snake thing. Some people, you know, but, but snake thing is... The, but anybody who knows anything about snakes, especially a six to eight foot snake, you typically do not grab a snake when you pick it up by its tail because if you grab a snake by its tail, you live at the absolute most potential in its strength to whip back around and, and to bite you, typically, if you watch them, people grab snakes, they grab them by the back of the neck so that it can't just curl back around and, and strike you. Uh, so what God tells Moses to do is not only terrifying, but the way he tells him to go about it is all the more, in a sense, something that would cause risk. Uh, it took a lot more courage. He was, in a sense, endangering his own welfare a little bit in what God was asking him to do in obedience. But yet when he does it, how? By faith. God asked him to do something. That, that sounds a little scary, Lord. That's a little risky. I, I know you're scared, Moses, but I'm helping you grow in faith here. I know you're afraid, but I'm asking you to do it. Do it even though it looks scary. Do it even though it looks a little bit risky, Moses. Take a little risk and trust me. And, and as he does it, God protects him. Nothing happens. And what's God showing him? Moses, listen, it does not matter what I ask you to do or even how risky it looks. If you do what I ask you to do and I'm behind it, I'm more than able to protect you and to preserve you and your own welfare and anything from happening to you. 
And interestingly enough, God says in verse 5 that this was to happen, notice, that they may believe the Lord God of their fathers has appeared to you. Because he was to do this in the presence of the people of Israel. He was to repeat this miracle in front of them. Now, no doubt this would be a revelation of God's power to them because we do know historically that one of the symbols of the Egyptian empire was the cobra. If you look at uh, pictures of pharaohs and so forth in that day and the little metal thing that would be on their you know, kind of headgear that they would wear, many times you'll see a symbol of a cobra. So this was a picture in some ways of God saying, listen, the, the, the nation, the empire of Egypt, that you're terrified that if you go back and risk your welfare to appear before Pharaoh, who chased you out of town 40 years ago, and a death sentence is on your life for the Egyptian that you murder, and thinking, if I go into Pharaoh's presence and say, let, can you let those people go? Uh, listen, he's saying, it does not matter what you're stepping into. I can protect you there in Egypt. I can keep you safe and make sure nothing will happen. And so it was a symbolic indication both to Moses and the children of Israel that God would protect them in the midst of his purposes. Well, the second miracle, verse 6, furthermore, the Lord said to him, now put your hand in your bosom. The idea is inside of his robe or his cloak near his chest. And when he put his hand in his bosom and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Now again, that was in that culture especially. They didn't have the medicines that we use today for uh, Hansen's disease or what many refer to as leprosy where we can arrest, I uh, can't cure, but arrest the uh, symptoms and the progression of this type of a condition. In that day, that was lethal. Uh, leprosy was something we'll see later. God codifies in the law that when you had leprosy, you had to be ostracized from the camp. And basically, it was just a slow, progressive death sentence. So to pull out his hand and all of a sudden it's full of leprosy was an indication that's a death sentence. That was a complete transition and it would have shocked Moses. And then God told him, verse 7, to put it back into his bosom again. And when he put his hand in and drew it out, behold, it was restored like his other flesh. So again, God's showing him, I have the power over life and death, Moses. I'm the God who has power over sickness and disease. None of these things are outside of my control. God's just revealing his incredible power, his miraculous and supernatural ability in Moses' life. Verse 8, and then it will be if they do not believe you, nor heed the message of the first sign, that they may believe the message of the latter sign. And it shall be if they do not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river, that would be the Nile, which was worshipped in that culture as sort of a source of life, or was worshipped like one of their gods. And you shall pour the water of the Nile on the dry land, and that water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry ground. Now, again, whether he ever does this last thing that's mentioned here, we know that becomes part of the plagues that takes place with Pharaoh. But what is God doing here? In synopsis, what you have God saying to Moses here, I believe in these first nine verses, is Moses, listen, I know you sense your insufficiency, and I know you struggle and are worried about your inadequacy, and, and you're saying, suppose this happens, or suppose that goes wrong, or what if this doesn't take place, or what if people don't believe and support what I'm trying to do, and, and I, the whole thing's a failure. And in a sense, what God is saying to Moses 
as he's doing these miracles and encouraging his heart to ratify his credibility and the call of God upon his life as he's saying, Moses, listen, whatever you are lacking, I can add by my miraculous and supernatural capability in your life so that you can fulfill my ministry and my purpose and calling in your life. And Moses, look, what do you got? You got a staff? You got Just start with what you have. Start with what you have. And Moses, wherever you lack, I am more than able as the God who has the power over life and death and all creation, I am more than able to add miraculous, supernatural capability in your life in any way that it's needed for you to fulfill my purposes. And I think that's a good encouragement for us to remember. The Bible tells us that with God, nothing will be impossible. That if our lives are linked together with God, there is no impossibility no matter what God asks us to do. Our job is to step forward into what he directs us to do and to trust his anointing and to believe that his miraculous supernatural enablement will join together with us to empower us for whatever it is. Well, verse 10, then Moses said to the Lord, as if that were not enough. Again, you have to process. The, it, imagine this. I mean, much like us. This is almost in some ways encouraging for all the excuses we make sometimes. Verse 10, Moses said, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So what's Moses' next excuse? He says, God, I can't speak proficiently. I'm not eloquent, Lord. In other words, you're saying, I'm not a good orator. I'm not a good communicator. God, you're asking me to go and stand before Pharaoh uh, and to reason with him and to dialogue with him. And then if he resists, to have the right comebacks and, and to somehow convince the Pharaoh of Egypt that he should let your people go and that you're the one true God. And he says, God, I just... I, I can't speak well enough. There's got, there's got to be a realization here. Lord, my limitation and my communication ability is just too limited. There's no way that I would be able to say and to think through and to, to, to speak the things that need to be said to be effective for what you're asking me to do. He says, I'm not eloquent. And he says, I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. The idea is some think Moses is referring to an impediment. I think what Moses is trying to convey there is, Lord, I'm, I'm just not good with words. You know, I'm, just, I'm just not one of these guys, uh, God, who, who just, I, I'm, I'm kind of slick and I can, you know, put together little catchy phrases and enunciate and, and, you know, be whimsical and win over the crowd. And that's just not me, Lord. I just, I'm, I'm not a quick thinker like that. And I don't have a good way to put words together and rhyme endings on them and so forth. And Lord, there's got to be somebody who can do this way better, he says. And interesting because Acts chapter 7, verse 22 tells us Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. So earlier on, apparently he was a pretty capable, competent communicator in his flesh. But notice Moses learns at this point, any capability I have in the flesh is never going to be sufficient to do God's work. But he's struggling with what you and I struggle with. We struggle with, man, I just, I'm just, I'm not a good communicator. To stand up and talk in front of people or to try and speak to somebody about what the Bible says, or to share the gospel with my friends, or you know, a co-worker, or a family member, or a fellow student. I just, Lord, I, I just, I, that's not me. I'm just not a good talker. I'll mix up my words, and I'll, I'll say things I shouldn't say, and I won't be able to think quick enough on my feet. Uh, and it is interesting that we tend to think, 
that our incapability to communicate somehow limits what God can do through our communication. And so we pose that as an excuse. Lord, I can't. Just I'm just not good. I'm not a good talker. I'm not a good communicator. Well, look, verse 11, God again blows his excuse out of the water. He says, the Lord said to him, Moses, uh, by the way, who, who made your mouth? Uh, you're worried about your control of your mouth. Who made your mouth, Moses? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I, the Lord? Again, God's saying, listen, I've made every person. And, and he says, and I'm aware of everyone's incapabilities. I'm aware of the limitations and strengths and weaknesses of all people, of all different categories and, and statuses in life. He says, have not I made these things? Now, his injunction, verse 12, therefore go. And that's what God just says to us. Stop making excuses and just go. Especially when it comes to speaking on God's behalf. What did Jesus tell the disciples? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. He didn't say learn how to preach the gospel more effectively. Make sure you have you know the, 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 the four spiritual laws memorized. Or you, you have the, the proper program for evangelism. Just, just go. Go and preach the gospel. Just go forth Speak on God's behalf, and God says to him, Moses, I will be with your mouth, and I will teach you what you shall say. And that's always the Lord's encouragement when he calls us to speak on his behalf. Again, wh whether God's asking you to communicate the gospel to people, and God wants you to share the gospel with a friend or somebody he puts in your path, whether God wants you to to be someone who's willing to say, all right, Lord, I, I, I'll teach in some capacity or I'll be willing to, to sh you know, share a Bible study with some friends or, or Lord, I'll embrace your call. I, I think you're calling me to be a communicator, a, a pastor, teacher, a missionary. Whatever. I think God's word to us is, listen, if I've called you, do you think I'm limited by your inability to communicate well? Interesting to me that God simply says to him, go, just be obedient. Again, because why? God is not looking for our ability. He knows our ability, and he knows it's not very impressive for any one of us. But God says, if you will give me your availability, then he says, I, notice verse 12, I'll be with your mouth. That makes all the difference in the world. He says, I'll be with your mouth, interesting verse 12 to me, and teach you what you shall say. I have that word underlined in my Bible, teach you what you shall say. And here's why. Because God is way more concerned about what we say than how we say it. For some reason, our big concern is how we say things. Did I sound impressive? Did I seem like a good orator? Did I, you know, did I, listen, God's not as concerned about how we say things He's concerned about what we say, the content of what we say. Did we share the word of God? Did we share the gospel? Did we share the heart of the Lord? If what we say is accurate, how we say it may be with stuttering, it may be with bumbling, it may be too fast, too slow, but the anointing of God can be upon it still if what we said was accurate and what God wanted us to and God can bless it from there. Remember what Paul said, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, let me remind you of Paul's words. Paul said this, And I, brethren, when I came to you, this is Paul the Apostle, 
I did not come, listen, with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. That's exactly who you want for a guest teacher, isn't it? You know, you bring home a guest teacher, you know, to, to a retreat, and you, hey, yeah. so what do you think about this guy? You gave him a ride in from the airport. Well, to tell you the truth, I mean, kind of seems like he's a terrified mess. You know, he seems nervous. He seems like he's he couldn't even carry a conversation back here, and then we're going to stand him up at a retreat. And again, Paul says, I was with you in weakness, in fear, in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching, notice, were not with persuasive words of human wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. See, what God wants is not that we go, wow, that guy's really persuasive. He's really a great communicator. What God wants is people to leave and say, God spoke to me. Wow. I sense the power of God speaking to my, God spoke to me. That's what God wants, that people's faith and people's reliance would be in the experience of the power of God coming through the anointing of not how something's said, but what is said. The word of God being conveyed as God just uses a vessel as a voice. And again, don't ever discount the call of God upon your life because of your perceived capability. Be obedient. Let the Lord use you. He'll be with your mouth. He'll teach you what you should say. And Moses here, verse 13, says, Oh, my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. Now, at this point, verse 13, let me say something. Moses has crossed the line from humility into flat-out disobedience. And there comes a time where humility actually becomes false humility. In essence, it becomes pride. Where we so self-deprecate ourselves. Oh, what if this? Suppose that. And, 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 and I can't speak good enough. And, and, and who am I? And, and where natural, normal humility, human reluctance and apprehension, that's good. That's a good indication when we have a humble heart and we're a little apprehensive about stepping into the call of God. Where when there comes a point where then, like Moses here, we say, you know what, no, no, Lord, send somebody else. Interesting, you notice verse 14 starts out by saying, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Why? Because Moses has crossed the line from what was humility, in a sense now, to arrogance, that he is so hyper-focused on himself that he thinks that just because he doesn't have enough to offer that God can't do what God needs to do through his life. Now he's become arrogant in a sense. Moses, who are you to dictate to me that because you don't think you have enough game, that I still can't get done what I need to get done through your yieldedness and your availability. And the Lord actually becomes that. It's just like Jonah's situation now, where the Lord called Jonah and Jonah went in a different direction. And there comes a time where we can go from what is beginning with humility to actual disobedience in rejecting the call of God upon our life. And, and he says, Lord, send someone else. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. So there, Moses, solve that problem for you, he says. And I think now 
verses 14 and down, you see God tragically transitioning over into what I, in essence, see as the permissive will of God rather than the perfect will of God. And I think Moses here, in a sense, forfeits what God could have done through his life if he were willing to have faith to believe that though he considered himself nothing, that God could do something through an absolute nothing because now Aaron comes into the picture, he becomes involved, and can I just remind you, I know I'm fast-forwarding in ahead, but keep in mind what happens. Aaron ends up creating a few problems along the way. Remember that golden calf thing that Moses gets everybody into? I mean, that Aaron gets everybody into while Moses is up seeking God? Why? Because Aaron gets involved, and Aaron really wasn't the one called to do this. Moses was. And because Moses was being somewhat disobedient, God takes the permissive path. He allows Aaron to be involved, but not without problems. And sometimes we have to be careful. We can miss the best of what God might want to do, what God could have done because of our reluctance and our apprehension at times. So he says, look, he is also coming out to meet you, verse 14. And when he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. So God's, in a sense, putting together his, his backup plan, in a sense, if you would. Now you shall speak to him, and you put words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. And you shall take this rod in your hand with which you shall do the signs. So end of verse 17 we close off the burning bush moment now. God has spoken to Moses. They've worked through these excuses and challenges. He's told him, listen, okay, then what we're going to do is we're going to get Aaron involved. Aaron, now you're going to speak to him, and then he'll speak to the people on your behalf. In verse 18, now Moses seems departs from where he was there, where this burning bush was, and God's been revealing himself and speaking to him. And verse 18 says, Moses returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now, verse 18 almost seems like a summarization because really, I mean, in a quick snapshot here, you have Moses going back to his father-in-law Jethro, telling him, in a sense, what has just transpired and what God's called him to do and asking for his permission to depart. Now, whether Moses shared with him everything that happened or more than this, again, we can only speculate. It's hard for me to believe that Moses would not have conveyed somewhat of what this incredible experience he just had. And maybe we just have the Bible giving us a summarization. But the key thing that I think God is setting before us and wants us to see is that when this call of God very powerfully came upon Moses' life, and there's no questioning what took place, that Moses in his wisdom still went back to his father-in-law Jethro. Again, it was a patriarchal society. And whoever was the eldest among the males in a clan was considered to be the leader. And what was Moses doing? He was, in essence, working for Jethro. He was working under Jethro's authority. It was Jethro's flock, correct, that he was tending. So in a sense, Jethro was the person that God had established as an authority 
in Moses' life at this point in time, someone whose authority Moses functioned under, that God had arranged and orchestrated. And you see Moses here, I think very wisely and submissively, going back to the human authority that God had established in his life, and in a sense, communicating openly and honestly, hey, this is what I sense God is leading me to do, to go back to Egypt. Are you okay with that? Does that bear witness with your spirit? And what's he doing? He's seeking confirmation. He's seeking confirmation in his life through the authority that God's established in his life as a covering. And I think there's tremendous wisdom in this. That he goes to Jethro and notice God confirms the calling in Moses' life through Jethro as the God-established authority in his life because Jethro says to Moses, Amen. Go in peace. We're going to miss you here, but you know what? It sounds like God's leading you. It sounds like the Lord is calling you. And God, through the authority that existed in Moses' life, confirms he bears witness to the experience of the call of God in his life. And you know what? I I strongly encourage you, whatever God calls you to do, uh, that you don't be someone who just, when you sense the call of God or the leading God to do something, that just launches out and does it without taking into consideration sharing that with Maybe some of the people that God has put into your life uh, as mentors or those you look up to, you know, in my life, to this day still, if I sense the Lord's leading me to do something in regards to, you know, departing from Calvary Chapel of York and turning things over there and coming down here and planning a new work, you know, a, a major, major part of that was me seeking and praying together, not only with my wife, but also, you know, sharing and praying through those things with two or three other pastors in my life that I look up to and saying hey you know do you sense the lord in this Uh, and looking for that mutual peace that confirming peace hey tony that seems like the lord that seems like the lord i think it's a very wise thing it's a safe thing when we feel god is speaking to us and directing us and moses gets the green light and the encouragement from jethro now in verse 19 so the lord said to moses and midian go return to egypt For all the men who sought your life are dead. Now, I'm sure he would have liked to have heard that at the beginning. (laughs) Oh, that's nice to know. Maybe that's what he was a little afraid of. We could wonder that. Maybe that's a little of what the underlying apprehension was. Again, there was a death warrant out on his head back in Egypt. And he says, Moses, by the way, did I mention... You know, that Pharaoh that wanted to kill you and all the other people in the town who were after your head. Uh, No worry, they're, they're dead by now. So you don't have to worry about that part. Then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey, returned to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the rod of God. Notice how it's called now, the rod of God in his hand. I love that. God can take whatever simple things you have to offer, and he can transition them into supernatural things. I I find that such a beautiful illustration that the Holy Spirit calls it that purposely because I think it's a reminder to us, hey, what's in your hand tonight? Whatever is in your hand, if you give it to the Lord for his use and purposes, whatever it is, God can use it. You know, back when we used to live uh, in in York, uh, before we moved down here, uh, our girls became involved in this little, uh, uh, like a dance school. Uh, Well, our youngest daughter did, excuse me, in in a dance school with one or two other girls from the church. And it was two uh, young ladies who were Christians who had a love for dance Uh, And so they started a dance school as a ministry. 
Uh, and again, what did they have? They were dancers. They liked to dance. They were good at dancing. So they opened a little dance school for free. Imagine that. Parents like that kind of stuff for free. For free, yeah. And, and and they let girls come in, and, and they taught them how to dance, and they spent time with them, and they shared a little devotion with them, and, and they gave these young girls this wonderful experience, and they did it through just a simple love and passion that they had. They, they, you know, their dance shoes became, you know, shoes for God or whatever, you know, and they used what they had for the Lord. I thought it was phenomenal. It was an incredible usefulness. So again, whatever it is, God can use whatever you have. Turn it over to him. Make it available, that skill, that thing. Don't think God can't use you. He can use you in whatever you're willing to let him use that you have in your life. Verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all these wonders before Pharaoh, which I've put in your hand. But notice, I will harden his heart so that he will not let you go. Now, we'll see this as we move forward. Again, keep in mind. When God ultimately hardens Pharaoh's heart, it's the result of Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And we'll talk when we get ahead in the further chapters where we see in Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then we read as well that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And we'll see that there are two different Hebrew terms that God uses there. That Pharaoh hardens his heart and hardens his heart. And then the Hebrew literally tells us, and God confirmed, or the idea is God stiffened. In other words, God confirmed and stiffened Pharaoh in that position and said, okay, if that's what you want, then I will stiffen your heart in that hardened position. In a sense, God just then gave to Pharaoh what Pharaoh had already done in the rejection of God. But what's God doing with Moses here? Again, he's reminding Moses, verse 21, Moses, when you go, you do what I ask you to do. I'm going to do wonders. But he says, but be aware, he says, that Pharaoh is not going to immediately let the people go. Now, I think this is very, very gracious of God because what God is saying is, Moses, look, you do what I ask you to do. You be obedient and I'm going to be with you and my hand is upon you and my calling is indeed at work in your life. But Moses, I want to let you know in advance, there is not going to be immediate success. In fact, Moses, we'll see in chapter 5, it's actually going to look like it's an utter failure when you first start. The thing's not going to take right off the ground, Moses. There's not going to be immediate success. There's not going to be right away everything just flinging open. Uh, and he says, instead, it's actually going to be a struggle when you first start. And I think this is incredibly gracious of the Lord because you know how discouraging that must have been for Moses as he went through all that and so certain, so sure God's called him. And have you ever stepped out to do something for the Lord before and you're, you're so certain that the Lord's directed you to do something and you know God's called you and you know God's spoken to you, so you do something God asks you to do and God says, I want you to witness this person and you witness the person and it's an utter flop. They get mad at you and, and you're thinking, what in the world? Lord, I did what you told me to do. Okay, maybe i got to pray a little more. So you pray a little more and then you try and talk to him two weeks later. Same thing again and you're thinking, what in the world? But see, sometimes this is how the work of God happens. And we have to be careful that we don't let our hearts get discouraged because we don't instantaneously see right away the fruit and the success that we long for. Again, the Bible tells us in Galatians, let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we don't lose heart. 
Again, there's a gap of time between sowing and reaping. And sometimes we have to sow and sow and sow until the right time comes where the seed actually takes root and begins to blossom. And, and here, this was the case with Moses, a man following God's calling. And maybe you, as you've been seeking God's will and following what God's asking you to do, you're going to see the same thing happen in your life. Don't be discouraged by that. God says sometimes that's just the way that things transpire in his works. Verse 22, And then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn. So I shall say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed I will kill your son, your firstborn. So God tells Moses, Listen, when you get to Pharaoh, I want you to share with him the value of my people to me. I want you to tell him, listen, my people are precious to me. They're like a firstborn son. I have a special love for them. And, and this is happening because I care about them. And he says, I want you to let Pharaoh know that the, the, the reason I'm asking you to let them go is because in the same way you love your firstborn son, this is how I feel about my people. So God gives Moses, again, these words to convey. And, of course, ultimately we know that the, the, the exodus of the people will come at the expense of Pharaoh's firstborn son, losing his firstborn because of his rebellion against the work of God in his life, he'll suffer great loss. Now, verse 24, we get this really peculiar little scene here in the midst of uh, Moses answering God's calling and heading now towards Egypt to obey what God's asked him to do. It says, And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him, that's Moses, and sought to kill him. And then Zipporah, his wife, took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So God, notice, then let Moses go. And the language there indicates he, like to release from a stranglehold. That's the Hebrew there, that God released whatever he was doing in a sense by sort of putting Moses' life in jeopardy, as verse 24 tells us. So God let him go, and then she said again, notice, you are a husband of blood. The reason, the Bible tells us, because of the circumcision. So, again, what in the world? You know, here God calls Moses. He goes through all this effort. Think about it. Think about what we've read from chapter 3 to this point. He goes through all this effort to invest in Moses and to give him the burning bush thing and deal with all his excuses and encourage him and convince him and show him miracles. And then all of a sudden, here's God's worker, here's God's workman. Now, verse 24, it says all of a sudden, now God's, now the God, God's ready to kill the guy. God's ready to take him out. Verse 24 literally says that the Lord met him and literally sought to kill him. Probably gave Moses some life-threatening illness where he was about to die and lose his life. Now, we can deduce from the text, apparently, what was taking place from the language we have here, especially the end of verse 26, where it says it was because of the circumcision. And we see that what had happened apparently is Moses was not obeying the Lord in this area of the circumcision of one of their children, probably their younger child. Again, Genesis chapter 17, verse 10 to 14, God told the children of Israel that his covenant that they were to keep for all their generations was that they were to circumcise their male children when they were eight days old. It was to be a mark in their flesh 
of a spiritual covenant and relationship that God had with them. And God said there in those verses that the uncircumcised male child who's not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people for he has broken my covenant. So Moses clearly knows, as any Jew would, that this was a very direct command from God. It was something where Moses apparently, for whatever reasons, and we can speculate and commentators do, he was in clear willful disobedience to the will of God. Now, maybe it was a situation where, again, he's married a Midianite woman, and as they had their first child, Moses, as a strong spiritual leader, said, listen, the God of Israel says this is something that we're to do. And so they circumcised their first son, and, and, and Zipporah wasn't really very happy with that. She thought it was rather cruel, and, and it was kind of a, you know, something that, that uh, bothered her in regards to putting her child through this kind of a thing for whatever. Uh, but yet they went through with it. And then maybe as time began to progress with the second child, uh, there was a little bit of resistance. And she indicated how, yeah, I don't know, it's just, I mean, that's a little radical, what, you know, I don't see why we really need to do that. And potentially there was then a little bit of strain and tension in the home. And Moses thinking, you know what, rather than push the issue on this one, I, you know, I'm just going to pull back on that and, and just let that go. And this child is never circumcised. And he doesn't obey God potentially in order to satisfy his wife or to keep his wife happy so he resists in this area and in a sense pleases her rather than obeying the lord and notice now as he's on the way because again take notice as soon as this happens they know right away what's going on you notice what zipporah does she instantly recognizes this is exactly why this is happening because she she creates this circumcision operation herself, and she throws the foreskin down at Moses. You're a bloody husband. So they know exactly what's going on here. And again, as I look at this, it's a reminder to me of the seriousness that God holds dear to his heart about personal obedience. Again, here's Moses. He is the man that God has called to be instrumental to lead his people. God's calling is on his life, but in a sense, God is saying here to Moses, listen, Moses, you can't lead my people when your life is in personal disobedience. I don't tolerate that. And Moses, this area of your life, I take obedience seriously. And, and, and you don't get some special opportunity to, in a sense, skirt certain areas just because my calling is upon your life. No, Moses, you need to be right in your personal and private life first if you're ever going to be able to lead my people effectively the way that I want you to. So God is literally willing to take the guy out. God's literally willing to, to take away his life and, and, and be very severe with him because of a lack of personal obedience. God takes personal obedience very seriously especially in our personal and our private lives, in our family lives. Again, it reminds me of what 1 Timothy chapter 3 says, where we get qualifications for, again, elders in the church and, and deacons in the church. And there in 1 Timothy 3, we're told, if someone does not rule his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence, it says, for if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Again, the Bible says, look, Obedience is necessary in the private life first, in the personal life first. Let me tell you something. It is much easier 
to do things for God and lead God's people in a public setting than it is to lead your own life in private personal obedience when no one else is watching. And to be a spiritual leader as a man in your home and to lead your wife and to draw the line in regards to conviction and say, you know what, no, this fleshly thing will not remain in our home. This will not be tolerated with our children. This is what we will do. And I know you may give me pushback as a wife or you may give me pushback as one of my children, but as the high priest in this home and the spiritual leader in this home, no, we will obey God in this area. Because see, that then becomes qualification in the personal life and integrity to then be useful to God on a greater level. And here you see God dealing with Moses. And I think it's just a great example the word of God sets before us to remind us of the importance and seriousness of personal obedience. And why would God just eliminate Moses after all that? Because God takes obedience seriously. We need to be obedient to God in our personal lives even before we're concerned about what God would do with our public lives. Let's finish up these last few verses and we'll close. It says, The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So God now speaks to Aaron on his end. And again, a great reminder when God's working, he's always working on both ends. He says, Aaron, I want you to go out, meet your brother Moses in the wilderness. So he went and met him on the mountain of God and kissed him. And had this great reunion. Forty years had passed, it seems, since these two brothers had saw one another. So God tells Aaron, I want you to go meet Moses. He obediently goes into the middle of the wilderness. God's putting them together now. And I love how God works on both ends when he's doing things. He works on two different ends to bring people together. And Moses told Aaron all the words the Lord had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. And then Moses and Aaron went and gathered all the elders of the children of Israel and spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses and then he did the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction and they bowed their heads and worshipped. So as the people hear the word of God and they see the power of God, initially notice their hearts are tender. And they begin to worship God and they believe and they have that sense of confirmation that the Lord is in things. And again, can I just say, isn't that exactly what God told Moses would happen? And now Moses is getting to enjoy the fruit of beginning to see some of the confirmations of doing what God's asked him to do. And that's such a rewarding thing. When you step forward, you take that one initial step of faith and you do what God's asked you to do. And God lets you see a little fruit. He lets you see a little bit of, yeah, see that? I'm in this. I told you I was in this. The people believe. The people respond. And you know what? Maybe for you tonight, maybe the Lord's been speaking to you about something in your life. Maybe it's some simple little thing or even through this study or recently God's been nudging you and, and asking you to do something in your life. You know what? Trust the Lord. God keeps his word. Take the step of faith and let the Lord confirm to you what he's directing in your life because you know what? Then when you get to taste that, wow, oh, wow, look at that. God actually did it. And that then gives you the encouragement to say, okay, I took step A and God met me at the mountain of step A. Now I'm going to take step B. And God stretches and encourages our faith and gives us that encouragement to keep walking forward in the things that he's directing us to. Let's